Well, if you have God's word with you, please turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And for context, we'll read starting from verse 14. And uh, we looked at verses 14 to 15 prior to last Good Friday where Pastor Minjay preached. And we're looking at that great implication now in verse 16. So let me read God's word to you beginning in verse 14. And may God plant his eternal word into our souls. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before your throne through the merits of Christ alone, asking that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Our, our desire is to see your word rightly, so as to apply your word faithfully. Holy Spirit, convict us, illuminate us, and reveal Christ to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, John Calvin is a name that we often quote from this pulpit, and he is known as the Reformed theologian who perhaps outside of Martin Luther has had the greatest influence on the Reformation. But what is often overlooked with Calvin is that he was a pastor who wanted his, his sheep to grow in the Christian life. And he wasn't some ivory tower theologian who was unable to be practical and relate with his people. Calvin had a pastor's heart. And his pastoral emphasis are abundantly clear in his writing on prayer. Calvin focused more on the practice of prayer than on its doctrine, which shows how practical he, his theology was. And for Calvin, prayer was and is the essence of the Christian life. Prayer is a precious gift, not an academic problem. And this comes out in all of his sermons, commentaries, and treatises as he writes warmly, warmly and experientially, especially on the book of Psalms and in one of the longest chapters of his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, which spans about 70 pages. And for anyone in, in, intimidated to read Calvin's Institutes because of the sheer number of pages and heavy emphasis on theology, just pick up the book and open the section on prayer and you will see just how the tone is devotionally warm and encouraging to the soul. Well, commenting on Psalm 10, Calvin considered prayer to be holy and a familiar conversation with God, our Heavenly Father. Reverently speaking, it is a family conversation in which the believer confides in God as a child confides in his father. And in his institutes, Calvin writes that prayer is an emotion of the heart within which is poured out and laid out before God. Prayer then is this, this outpouring of the soul communing with God, laying all of our cares and burdens upon Him. And to Calvin, prayer is the most important part of the Christian life, the lifeblood of every believer. Now from these definitions and wonderful statements from Calvin on prayer, one of the aspects of Calvin's thought on prayer that has stuck with me over the years was, is that prayer was not given primarily for God, but for man. In other words, prayer is not for God's benefit but for ours. God in His sovereign majesty doesn't need our prayers since He Himself, the Apostle Paul says, gives to all people life, breath, and all things. 
Prayer is a gift that God has given to man so that we might by faith reach those riches which is laid up for us with the Heavenly Father, as Calvin writes in the Institutes. Now all of what Calvin said concerning the gift of prayer, the author of Hebrews would affirm in this great verse in Hebrews 4.16. The author is seeking to encourage us to take advantage of this gift of prayer by looking up to the throne of grace where these riches are laid up for us in our Heavenly Father. Now when I hear these beautiful privileges of prayer, my first reaction, and I suspect many of you think this way, oh my God, how faithless am I? Whenever the topic of prayer comes up, it does reveal who we really are. For all of our talk of our faith, for all of the truth that we know about what prayer is and what a gift it is that God has given us, our prayer life reveals how much we really want to commune with God. Our prayer life reveals how much we really depend on Him. Prayer does not tell us about the security as a child of God, but it does tell us, and very accurately I might add, how much of an infant we are spiritually and how much we actually love the Lord. And so if you have a tendency to think yourself as pretty wonderful and you're doing great spiritually, just look and remember your prayer life. There are a couple of effective instruments of God that keep me humble. Number one, it's my wife. And number two, it's looking at my prayer life. And knowing this about ourselves, the author of Hebrews is seeking to encourage his people to pray, to receive mercy and find grace we need to press on. The very lifeblood of every believer is to come before the throne of grace. Now let me set before you uh, verse 16 in its proper context so that we'll situate ourselves rightly in understanding this verse. The end of Hebrews 4 concludes a long exhortation that began in chapter 3. You remember how the author exhorts his congregants to keep firm to the end by looking to the apostle and the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. And this exhortation was given because of the temptation of the hardening of the hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. And this led the author to speak of the promise regarding the eternal rest which is in Christ. And he ends with three great exhortations, all beginning with those encouraging words, let us. He says firstly in verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. It is hard to labor to enter into that rest. How is it to be done? The second exhortation answers that. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 14, what confession is he talking about? Well, of course, he's talking about the pillar statement of faith. The Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession. No, those are good confessions, but no. It's the confession that Christ is Lord. It's holding fast and clinging on to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of the temptation to abandon Christ and to neglect so great a salvation, nothing is more logical and important than to hold fast to our confession, which is in Jesus Christ. But then you see, The author, knowing the weakness of our own hearts and how our confidence in Christ wavers, he lays out this third exhortation to give us the ultimate foundation for strength in holding on to Christ. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. There at the throne of grace, we will receive strength that will again enable our slackened fingers to grasp again the thing that we are to hold on to, which is Christ. 
And my hope in this sermon is to stir you up to pray. That your souls may be led to come often near the throne of grace. And so first, we're going to see what the throne of grace is. And second, we'll take up that great invitation on how we are to come to the throne of grace by coming to Him boldly. And thirdly, the result of drawing near to the throne of grace. So firstly, let's come to this beautiful expression that the author writes, the throne of grace. Now, as far as I know, there is no other mention of throne of grace in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean we are left to guess what this throne of grace is. We need to acknowledge that our text speaks of a throne and what a majestic throne it is. Listen to how Scripture describes God's throne. Psalm 89, 14, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Hebrews quoting Psalm 45 says, your, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. It is a throne of power and might. Psalm 132.8. Jeremiah 14.21 says, The throne of thy glory. Jesus speaks of his glorious throne in Matthew 25.31. So majestic and glorious and all-inspiring is this throne that the prophet Isaiah sees a vision in which the Lord sits on the throne, lofty and exalted. Would you turn to Isaiah 6? And in order to appreciate the Lord sitting upon a throne, we need to understand something so basic, so fundamental to the human experience. And that is that humans are not allowed to see the face of God. The scriptures warn that no person can see God and live. And the closest person that was allowed to see the face of God was Moses when he asked to see the Lord's face and he was denied and was only allowed to see the Lord's back. And as he returned from the mount, his face was shining and the people were terrified and shrank back from him in horror. That was only a reflection of the glory from the back of God. What must it be to stand directly in front of his face upon his throne? Well, Isaiah recalls how even the seraphim could not directly gaze upon the Lord's face. It tells us in Isaiah 6 that with two wings, they covered their faces. The seraphim, unlike us with impure hearts, are angelic beings. And yet even in their lofty status as messengers of the heavenly hosts, it was necessary for them to shield their eyes from the blazing glory of God. And with their second pair of wings, they cover their feet alluding to that encounter that Moses had with God in the burning bush where the Lord strictly told him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The very ground was made holy by the presence of God. And the seraphim too must cover their feet, acknowledging their finite creatureliness in the presence of the exalted and holy God. And these seraphim were singing and calling out to one another, holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled of His glory. And as they called out, holy, holy, holy to one another, Isaiah says that the foundations of the thresholds were shaken by the presence of God. And Isaiah saw this vision. R.C. Sproul in his classic book on the holiness of God, he said that the doors of the temple were not the only things that were shaking. The thing that quaked the most in the building was the body of Isaiah. 
And when the prophet Isaiah saw the living God in his sovereign power sitting upon his throne with the brilliance of his holiness before his eyes, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And to be undone means to be come apart at the seams, to be unraveled and to collapse. Oh, it is a dreadful thing to appear before the throne of judgment. You know, Spurgeon gave an analogy of these two lions, of the throne that Solomon built in the temple, where there were two lions, it says, on either side of the steps of the throne. And he said, I see two lions ready to guard and protect it. And who are these? Their names are justice and holiness. Let any attempt to assail that throne, and justice will devour them. And holiness with its fiery eyes will utterly consume them. But beloved, now add this marvelous word grace to the throne. And you clothe this majestic, sovereign, holy, and just and pure throne in the softest and tenderest of loves. It is not that God has somehow changed His holiness to grace. Not at all. God is and remains the Holy One. But it is now by the grace of God, not on account of any goodness in us, that we can draw near to the throne of grace. How can this be? Is this really possible? Well, remember the verses that come before this in Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It is the work of God, the high priest of our confession, that gives us the confidence to draw near. The throne of grace, according to F.F. Bruce, is the antitype to the mercy seat in the earthly sanctuary. The mercy seat, which Pastor Danny referenced in the last uh, Lord's Day. Allow me to explain. Only on the Day of Atonement, was access to the Holy of Holies permitted to the Holy One. And the high priest alone could enter, and only under precise terms prescribed by Yahweh Himself. The Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle, was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, guarded by two cherubim. It was there that the glory of Yahweh was located. And when we recall what happened to the people at Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel 6, when God struck down 50,000 men for merely looking into the ark of the Lord, we can see something of this awesome significance that is attached to the Holy of Holies. Sinful human beings had no right of access to God. Even members of God's own covenant people lacked such access. The high priest was therefore the sole representative who was allowed that access. And that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And inside the Holy of Holies, God was above the ark, enthroned before the cherubim. And the law was under his feet, written in stone inside the ark. The law in the ark condemned their sin, and God was right on top of it. But then there was a lid of the ark. Some modern translations call the lid to the ark an atonement cover. And other versions call it the mercy seat. The ark's cover was used in making atonement for sin. First, the high priest would offer sacrifice for his own sins. And after he had made atonement for his own sins, the priest offered a sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And so on the day of atonement, 
the high priest would symbolically sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people, and he would bring its blood into the very presence of the Lord through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And when the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, this demonstrated that sin was forgiven. Atonement had been made. To put it another way, the people were covered. The sacrificial blood protected and shielded them from the wrath of God. And so you see, in this arrangement of God, above the ark was God in all of His holiness. Underneath was the law that exposed Israel's sin. And in between came the blood of the atoning sacrifice that covered transgression and turned away the wrath of God, reconciling the people to God. And if we are to be saved, if we are to draw near to God, something has to come between His perfect holiness and our unholy sin, the blood of a sacrifice acceptable to God. And this is precisely what Jesus Christ has come to do. Our high priest achieved for us on the cross. The Lord died upon the cross and He shed his blood and his body was buried in a grave and after three days he entered into the holy of holiest and raised again he passed through the heavens into heaven itself into the very presence of god and he presented his own blood and he has not presented the blood of bulls and goats but rather he has taken in his own blood the blood of jesus god the father was satisfied with the blood of jesus therefore he is now seated at the right hand of the father his sacrifice complete and effective once for all. And the amazing result of all of this is that the throne of God, which is a throne of judgment, becomes a throne of grace. The Puritan David Clarkson has eloquently put it, there is no throne of grace but through Christ. No mercy seat for us but by His mediation. Beloved, the throne of God in Christ is the throne of God and the Lamb. And so it is a throne of grace indeed. And so sinners are no longer commanded to keep their distance in fear and trembling. But amazingly, we are now invited to draw near and to do so with confidence. You know, isn't this such a glorious contrast? The children of Israel, when they were redeemed out of Israel and went to the wilderness to worship the living God, they came to the mountain with the fire and the smoke. And what does God say? Not too close. Don't touch the mountain or you'll die. And here we're told, my people, come close. Come close. Why? Because of Jesus, our great high priest, come close, come close to your father. Come close for on the throne you see one who, who is like a lamb that has been slain and wears his priesthood still. You know, this is the exact argument that Charles Wesley, the great, great hymn writer, makes in the hymn, Arise, my soul arise. What was Wesley's argument while well, he's wrestling with guilty fears? And he says, Arise, my soul arise, shake off your guilty fears. In other words, I'm afraid of God to approach you because I know what I'm like. I know what I've done. I know who I am. I know I deserve condemnation. And what does Wesley do in the remainder of the hymn? He argues against those guilty fears. He says, the bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. 
He appeals to the person and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And throughout this hymn, he piles reason after reason based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Why we ought to draw near to God. Because Jesus has now covered for our sins and dealt with our guilt on Calvary. And the last words of the hymn go like this. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. And Father, 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 Abba, Father, cry. That is precisely what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do. He's saying, come close to God, who is your Father in Jesus Christ. Come close, because this is a throne of grace. This is one of the most incredible invitations the world has ever... No, the world has nothing like it. We are now invited to draw near and to do so with confidence. And so secondly, I want us to consider the how in approaching the throne of grace. The author says, let us draw near with confidence or with boldness. Since we are invited to draw near and come close to the throne of grace by virtue of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, we can come with confidence. Now the word for confidence or boldness has at its root speaking openly and concealing nothing. The word confidence has a long documented history in classical Greek in free and open speech of citizens to, with one another. And perhaps what better captures the meaning of this word is to translate it this way. Let us draw near with bold frankness to the throne of grace. And you can see how the expression of confidence naturally means unembarrassed, unrestrained, an open pouring out of the heart. John Bunyan wrote an excellent treatise on prayer and defined prayer as the sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. It is this sincere and affectionate pouring out of the heart to God through Christ that this is boldness is speaking of. I can tell him things that I cannot tell you. Now you know there are these uh, respectable sins that we like to talk about in our small groups, for example. You go around sharing and you say, you know, this week I struggled a lot with worry. And everyone kind of nods in understanding. Or someone else shares, you know, I've been struggling a lot with discontentment. And other people in the group says, oh yeah, me too. But if you have some secret dark sins, you're probably not going to confess that in a small group. And if there are things that are eating you up where you must tell someone, you're more, more likely going to pour out your heart in full confidence in someone you can absolutely trust. The words will, will just flow out with great trust. You'll confide in someone you trust just as you would to your husband or your wife or your closest friend to whom you can tell everything. This is the manner, the disposition with which we are to come with God with confidence, unembarrassed, in full trust. Exactly as the psalmist David says, trust in Him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before Him. Yes, I say, pour out your heart before God. Because Christ, our great high priest, understands me. He is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses since He has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He knows my weaknesses. He understands my pain. He knows better than I do my temptations. Therefore, I need to come to Him with 
great freedom and tell him what is on my heart, being completely honest and open to him. Now, I suspect that many of our pious-sounding and flowery, eloquent prayers are not that impressive to him, especially when we are attempting to cover what is in our hearts and our lives. I wonder if the Lord isn't just tuning us out because we are not coming to him with freedom and frankness and open hearts to him. We come to him in prayer rather restrained without being open and sincere. Now, please don't under, misunderstand what I'm saying here when I say the word confidence is like t- telling your best friend something. This is not boldness of presumption. We are not buddy-buddy with Jesus. Remember, the throne of grace is still a throne. He is the most holy of all kings. Boldness there should be, but let it not be irreverent. This is not the boldness of self-will, but this is praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is not the boldness of self-merit, but always remembering like Daniel who prayed, we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. But it is the boldness of utter reliance upon God's promises and will that he has invited us to pour our souls to him. It is the boldness of heartfelt humility and trust because, because we go to one who is sovereign, who knows everything in our hearts before we even ask. It is the boldness of joyful submission that however God chooses to answer me, I know he knows what is best. It is the boldness of complete freedom that I can pour out my griefs and my sorrows. You know, I can't think of a better illustration of this confident, bold prayer to God than in the example of Hannah's life. If you can turn to 1 Samuel 1 with me. First Samuel 1, there at Shiloh at one of the yearly feasts, Hannah visited the tabernacle. She was greatly distressed. In chapter 1, literally, bitter of soul accurately describes the emotional condition of a heart as she was disappointed and distressed over her inability to bear children. And so in verse 10 it says, greatly distressed, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And sometimes tears themselves constitute prayer. For the Lord hears the sound of our weeping. Psalm 6.8 There was nowhere else to turn. She had to flee from Penina's cruel mockery. She found no solace in her husband well-meant, but inadequate sympathy. Not even the priest could understand her. Hannah could only turn to the Lord of hosts. And the essence of her prayer is her petition, Remember me. And within her prayer, Hannah made a vow to God that if God would give her a son, the child would be dedicated for lifelong service to him. But what stands out most about Hannah's prayer is the liberty and the freedom and the confidence that she enjoys before the Lord. Look at verse 13. It says, she was speaking in her heart. Her lips were moving, but there was no audible sound. And so Eli the priest mistakenly thought she was drunk and rebuked her. But now look at verse 15. Hannah replied, no, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have poured out my soul before the Lord. In her bitterness of soul, with many tears and out of grief and despair, she poured out her anguish. The Lord is a God who allows her to do that. 
And oh, how much more, dear Christian, does God allow us to come to Him with confidence to the throne of grace through the mediating and atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Our Lord can handle our tears. For Christ, our high priest, the writer of Hebrews tells us later, he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. John Calvin says that like Christ in Gethsemane, we cast our desires, sighs, anxieties, fears, and hopes, and joys into the lap of God. He says that we are permitted to pour into God's bosom the difficulties which torment us in order that He may loosen the knots which we cannot untie. This is the God that we have. This is the kind of compassionate and merciful God that we have, beloved, that He would allow us to come and to pour out our griefs and our sobs and our perplexities all at His feet. Let us then come with confidence, it says, to the throne of grace, so that what are the blessed results of drawing near? What are the blessed results of coming to God in prayer? It says so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Help in time of need. What a good place to be when we feel our needs most acutely. It is a problem in our prayers when we confuse our needs with once. You know, many times in prayer, we offer our petition of once. The question is, what do we expect to receive from God? Our text tells us not temporary blessings, not the answers to our foolish desires, but mercy and grace to help. These are spiritual and inward blessings, not fleshly and physical blessings. You see, sometimes we think that our greatest need is for a job, a husband, or a wife, or some physical healing. Now, there are merit in these things, to be sure, but we often pray for these things as if they are our greatest need when they are once. Nor are our needs for some future worries. But the grace and mercy for our present need. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us to pray for our present need, not for our hypothetical future things now remember our lord instructed us not to worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself for each day has enough trouble for its own we can get caught up with the future future worries future hypotheticals future fears and foolishly be distressed about premature anxieties about tomorrow but fail to realize that every hour that we live is a time of need in the words of a favorite hymn we like to sing speaks well of this i need thee every hour most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Have you been convinced of your needs? If not, it is very probable that you are living impoverished lives, missing out on the richness of God's blessing for your life. If you've never realized your infinite need, you will never avail yourself at the feet of Jesus who is himself and has infinite resources. I mean, isn't this the whole message of the gospel? Isn't this the whole message of Hebrews here? If you say that you are rich and strong and have need of nothing, you are not only delusional, 
but most to be pitied and impoverished. But our text tells us that our Lord, the great high priest, is moved by our infirmities. He is touched, not by our strength, not by our self-sufficiency, but he is moved when we are most weak. And when you know yourself to be most wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, that is when Christ opens the floodgates of his provisions for you. But what is it that we need most? Our needs are twofold. We need mercy and grace. Mercy and grace, such familiar words, so familiar that we are accustomed to overlooking the richness of it. And while mercy and grace are closely related, there appears to be a distinction between them. And we do well to note the difference. Perhaps we've heard it said this, this way, grace is getting what we do not deserve. Justice is getting what we do deserve. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And there is much truth to that. Grace is shown to the undeserving while mercy is compassionate to the miserable. We see the difference of this in our salvation where in God's mercy, He withholds what we deserve, which is His holy wrath. And in God's grace, He bestows upon us infinite blessings. In other words, in mercy, He withholds what we did merit. And that is eternal wrath. And in grace, he pours upon us what we could never merit, which is eternal life. And if you are not a Christian this evening, this is your greatest need. You must at once come to Christ. But Hebrews is not speaking of this obtaining of mercy and grace in the initial reception of our conversion, for these readers are already Christians. Instead, it speaks of the need that believers need most in their weakness. And so mercy and grace are to be understood in their secondary sense, not the love of God and salvation, but rather the continuing love in making us more like Christ. And thus in the context of a believer suffering from weakness, overwhelmed by their present crisis, obtaining mercy speaks of God's relief of man's miseries, and the grace is the favor of God which He gives for our help, help to persevere, help to overcome and help to stand. It's the assistance that is needed for our pilgrimage to heaven. And I don't think I could put the difference of mercy and grace any better than a metaphor I heard before. The one expresses the heart of God, and the other expresses the hand of God. When I recognize my utter need, I see my sins more keenly. I see my shortcomings. I feel my sin that troubles my soul and it stings my conscience and overwhelmed by my guilt. And there the heart of God in His mercy and compassion relieves me. I plead like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's the plea of David in his sins when he cried out, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. And then in receiving from the heart of God His mercy and pity and compassion on me, I receive the hand of God to find grace and all the help that I need to go on and go victoriously on to Christ. It is to the hand of a God that I come to receive the divine supplies of all my needs according to His riches. We need grace to help and help to walk through the valleys, help to suffer, help to overcome and help to live, and to die well. And beloved, each of these is met at the throne of grace. Beloved, we are not to think that mercy and grace that God gives us is something separate from Christ. Mercy and grace 
is not something that is given to us, but someone who is given to us, you see. Mercy and grace is Jesus Christ. The mercy that God gives is mercy in Christ. And the grace that God gives is grace in Christ. That is why the gospel invitation is not come and receive mercy and grace, but come and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. What we need most then is Christ, our Savior and Lord. This is our greatest need. Knowing this, must we not throw ourselves by faith into the arms of Christ and there find in Him in all of His priestly activity and atoning merit the sufficient mercy and grace to help in time of need. In time of need is the last bit of detail that blessed results of drawing near to the throne of grace. Time of need is better translated timely need. The Greek text indicates opportune help. In other words, at precisely at the very nick of time, at the very exact time determined by God's timing and not by ours. You see, time of need reminds us that God's timing for us is always perfect. God doesn't operate, in other words, according to our clocks and our calendars and our schedules and our plans and agendas, but God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is perfect. He may not come when you want Him to, but He's always right on time. God showed up, showed up for Noah 128 years before the rains and the floods, but it was still the right time. He showed up to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they were in the fiery furnace, in the midst of it, but it was still the right time. And God came before Peter when he went below the water, though not under until Peter felt the cold waves rise to his knees and he cried out, Lord, save me. I am perishing, but it was at the right time. You see, beloved, divine help always comes at the right time. Not before His saints have been tested and tried, but before utter despair had settled upon them and in time to do all that is needed. Therefore, let us draw near, the author says, with confidence to the throne of grace. Come then, Christian, draw near. Why should we hesitate? Why would we delay in drawing near to the throne of grace? Why, if the blessings of coming to the throne of grace are incalculable, why do we not as often and as earnestly pray to God? What reason do we have to stay away? You know, my plea to you, as is the author of Hebrews, is to live up to your income. There is not one of you here, including myself, that lives up to his privilege to pray. You know, there are many that live beyond their income. We often spend more than what is coming in our bank accounts. But there is not a Christian that does that, that lives up to a spiritual income. Dear Christian, you need to realize that you have an infinite income. The throne of grace is infinite in its blessings, and no Christian ever lives up to his income. There are some that say, you know, if I had more money, I would purchase a bigger house. I would upgrade our kitchen. I will get a new car and so on. Nothing wrong with that. But how much more are, are we ought, ought to think this way with our spiritual income? We cannot go beyond the throne of grace. 
How we then should desire to do greater things for God, to seek to find our treasure in Christ, to find our all in all in Him, to obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. The Christian ought to live up to his income and not below it. You have this privilege. You can always send your petitions to the throne of grace. You are free to the throne of grace. And if you want to talk to God tomorrow morning, you can. And if tonight you wish to commune with the living God, you can go to him. And it matters not how much you have sinned or how much guilt you carry or burden you bear. You can go to Christ. That is your right. That is your privilege. And this is why the author of Hebrews, when exhorting us to draw near, uses the present tense. The force of the present tense of drawing near is let us again and again and again draw near to the throne of grace. The throne of grace is always available for the Christian. Let us keep on coming is, is the idea. You and I, you see, we have a friend in the court of heaven. You and I have someone who has granted us access to the Father. Our bridegroom is on the throne. And so it's come close and keep coming. You see, because the Father will never deny the Son. And while we draw near to the throne of grace, it's as if we come to our Father signed, as it were, with the name of His beloved Son, with His shed blood as the stamp of approval. And therefore, our prayers will prevail with God. So come close. Draw near, Christian, and pour out your soul to God. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Our Lord can handle our tears. It won't make Him nervous if you unload your distress at His feet. And draw near, beloved. For if you are not drawing near, then you are in danger of drawing back from Christ. The believer who is not drawing near often to the throne of grace will be tempted to draw back to disbelief, to apostasy, to the deceitfulness of sin, and to the hardening of the hearts. That was the whole danger of these Hebrew Christians, wasn't it? The danger of drawing back. That may be the place that some of you are at this moment because you have neglected this privilege to pray. This is why you and I need to draw near to the throne of grace because we will receive from the heart of God and from the hand of God the mercy and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ to persevere in our faith. Draw near. Come close to the throne of grace. I close with the fitting conclusion from Spurgeon. As he writes, a throne of grace is a place fitted for you. Go to your knees by simple faith. Go to your Savior. For He, He it is, who is the throne of grace. Let's come to the throne of grace together. Our God and Father, what a privilege it is to carry everything to You in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to You in prayer. Forgive us, Lord, for neglecting so great a privilege. Forgive us, Lord, for treating prayer as a formal duty, moving our lips without moving our hearts. We have been guilty of using vain and meaningless, repetitious words. And we confess how much we have failed to live up to our spiritual income. 
But thank you, O Father, for reminding us in this great word of yours that access has been granted through the mediating work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your blood, for the atoning blood that covers our sins. Have mercy upon us, O God, and grant to us the grace so that we may inch, inch closer and closer to heaven. In Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen.